Father God, as we come before your word this morning, there is so much here. We need your spirit to bless us, to guide our hearts, to watch over them, so that we might feast upon the truth of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Truly is too much here in this word. Abby Stike, your your job has gotten very easy for the next couple weeks. Um, just start putting the same verses and put part two, part three, maybe part four, maybe part five. Because truly, the verses we're in today are some of the weightiest in all of the Old Testament. We're actually only going to look at three verses today. In chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The problem we have in large part when it comes to Exodus is that, and maybe this is a byproduct of this this being depicted um, in Hollywood movies and and. And, and we love to seize upon the triumphs of a story, is that sometimes we miss some of the sorrows. Sometimes we fail to truly consider the depths of despair. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned how at that time, the Battle of Stalingrad 80 years ago was still raging on. And that's the gap of time from when Moses was an infant put into the Nile to the time he would return to Pharaoh and on behalf of God, with God with him, he would declare to Pharaoh, let my people go. And I I think we all appreciate the fact that that's a long time of suffering and hardship. Actually, I thought about it a little bit more this week, that illustration, and it's almost like we should imagine if from World War II until now, maybe Hitler won. Let's, let's go into an alternate universe where Hitler won. And he continues to enact his holocaust on the ancient people, the Jewish people, but also uh, those Christians like we know happened to the Corey Ten Bloom family who would speak up against evil. He continued to have his extermination for 80 years. For 80 years. Imagine living in that world. What would you feel about God? And I use that word intentionally. Feel about God. What would the world as an observable reality have for you? How much testimony would that world, this kind of alternate universe we've, we've jumped into, How much outwardly would it provide for you in faith 
that God loves you, that God cares about you. We're, we're in that world in these verses right now. We're in a world where the first Holocaust is taking place. And, and we don't know when in the 80 years this scene interrupts exactly these three verses. It's likely in the middle. You'd have to think about it. It's, this happens every American election. You know, things will change. Things will get better. We just need a different leader. And one, and one person runs as a change candidate. One person runs as a I won't shoot down balloons in America candidate. And there you go. And we put all our hopes in a ruler changing. And here we see nothing changes even though the leader changes. The groans are still there. The suffering is still there. The slavery is still there. It just, it seems never ending. It's been 80 years. We have to appreciate that. Charlton Heston wasn't capable of portraying that kind of struggle. Of dealing with a God who at times will allow suffering through the course of an entire lifetime. People came and went. People lost children. People lost siblings. People lost spouses. People lost friends. People lost their own lives. In the course of this time. All through the suffering endured in this, the first Holocaust. And we need a Christian faith that it maturely and soberly considers this fact. That hasn't been the American model, at least for the last 60 years, I would say. Much of the American model has been, and you could read books on this as a pastor, make sure that when people leave the door, they feel great all the time. You know, sunshine and rainbows. And then maybe they'll get addicted to that feeling good. And they'll come back the next week. And they'll come back the next. And they'll come back the next. Make sure you don't talk about evil. You don't identify evil. You kind of talk about it vaguely. I was just listening to a sermon I was asked to listen to uh, by somebody. Nobody... Nobody you would know. And it, they, were, they were asking my thoughts about this preacher. And, and the preacher would not call evil, evil. And that's the school of American preaching. That's what the guys with shiny white teeth, bleached white teeth, will teach us if we watch them on TV. Sunshine and rainbows. And yet here is a scripture passage that says, what if God for 80 years gives you no deep feeling of his presence, no observable fact of the reality of him in the sense of just overwhelmingly answering the prayer? I mean, we're a people who 
This can even happen at times in the prayer meeting. You know, we've been praying for something for two, three weeks now. Why hasn't God answered it? 80 years. 80 years. God, God had been answering it quietly through Moses, and yet they haven't seen it yet. What kind of faith could sustain itself? It's not a faith found in feeling. It's not a faith found in observing. It's a faith that is concretely, devoutly committed to the Word of God, a spirit-born faith that knows what it believes and why it believes it. You know, pastors have often pointed out, people love to put up on their walls passages like uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And yet in that same chapter, there's a promise of, by the way, that means 70 years of exile. Moses, they waited 80 years. Noah preached a hundred years to a variety of households just trying to get one family to join on that ark. And, and, and any pastor knows this. Any preacher knows this of which Noah was one. You rely on prayer. There are so many times. You'd probably be shocked at how many times both Bruce and I in the back room are praying and saying, God, we are empty. We are on fumes. We have no ability. We have no strength in ourselves. Please fill us up. Think of Noah. For a hundred years he was preaching, Lord, let somebody hear. Let somebody listen. Let somebody uh, take heed. For a hundred plus years, nobody listened. Nobody took heed. No other household joined him. It would not happen. What do we do in that world? In, in Paul's last, last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, I believe, right before he's about to die, he writes Timothy and he, and he has this moment where he says, it looks, like, it looks like all those churches in Asia I was preaching to, Timothy, even the pastors I was close with, it looks like they've been lost. They've been lost to a false gospel. Here, here was his, a large part of his life's work, and it seems for all for naught. What do we do with those darkest days? Those darkest hours? What kind of faith can survive? So in an American church that has learned to lap up feeling-based preaching, it's not going to stand the fiery trial. I thought of James and Clara Smith this week. You guys probably know who I'm talking about right now. Some of you are going, who? They sat here. Well, no, they didn't technically sit here. This didn't exist yet. This part of it, at least. And worship was downstairs, except the men would come up here. James Smith is the gravestone by the Gemeine House. James Smith, when he reached manhood, 
He joined the gunpowder trade. That was a trade of his grandfather. It's a dangerous trade. There are bodies in that cemetery from that trade. Eventually, at some point in his life, he realizes this is dangerous work, and he ends up uh, becoming a hotel manager for safety purposes. He meets Clara. He, he marries Clara. They have eight children. And as they would come here Sunday to Sunday to worship here, one by one, they lose four of their children in death. Four times they had to come to this place in order to worship the God who doesn't always answer prayer the way we want it to be answered. Not feeling the best. And four times they went behind by that mine house about 200 yards away and they buried in the ground one of their eight children. If they had looked to America, looked to the hope of the stars and the stripes. This got up here, by the way, in 1950. It wouldn't have been up here at that time. The headlines would have been utterly discouraging. As Abraham Lincoln, this Republican, has been uh, elected president... And there's a great stir about this man named Lincoln, this Republican in the Democratic South. There's rumblings that they're going to secede. The headlines of the world were constantly discouraging. There's no hope for that family in the headlines in America. And then eventually war breaks out. And James Smith joins the Pennsylvania Calvary. And on July 3rd, at the Battle of Gettysburg, he's called to a farmhouse and to help a general. A general, by the way, who you know, General Custer, whose army is currently in a conflict, whose army is currently in uh, a, a conflict that the, this, the tide has not been stemmed, the battle has not been decided of this skirmish. And James was hit by a bullet. The once gunpowder maker who went away from gunpowder because he wanted to do a more safe job was hit by a bullet fired with gunpowder. For two days he suffered as he died. And then his body was returned eventually here. And his wife Clara, next to their four children, had to watch as her husband was lowered beside them. She would actually have to leave the area and move in with family. A faith based on feeling. A faith based on observation rather than a face, a faith based on God-given, spirit-given, intimate knowledge and understanding of the Word of God who has come to save us, who is our Redeemer. 
That's the only faith that would survive. Those other faiths fall away. Those other faiths, when the government tells you you don't need to go to church they, for 14 days, they never come back after 14 days to slow the curve. And we need to ha stop having such low standards as American Christians. We need a faith that can endure the bearing of children, the bearing of siblings, the bearing of parents, the bearing of spouses, that can endure our own personal bodily decay, and can endure family and friends living in a way that is under, in utter rebellion to God. That's the kind of faith Israel needed. It's not a faith of novelty. It's not a faith of that was nice. That was a good experience. That was new. It's a faith that can endure. A genuine faith which can survive life's groans. A faith that can survive when you don't feel like God hears you. And you don't see God working. As I pointed out a few times already in this passage, in these first two chapters, God has not made an appearance yet. Even in the verses we're looking at now, it's not technically that God has made an appearance, and yet he's going to tell us four things that he's been still doing. Yet it's still been silent. And the first is this. God says, I hear them. I hear what? I hear your screaming cries. The Hebrew word for cries here is a screaming cry. The kind of cry, if you've heard it a couple times in life, you know it. Remember one time in pastoral ministry here, somebody entered the door. It's the only time they've ever entered the door. It was somebody who had been an ambulance driver for 30 plus years. And that was their remark. Their, their, their most somber remark is that they've heard things and they've seen things and they've certain cries that, that they could never shake. And yet here God is telling us in His Word, for those who believe, you need to know God hears you. God hears our cries. For those that aren't just a faith rooted in feeling or in what they can observe, know that God still hears you. He hears and he know he hears the suffering cries that befall you. The next thing Moses lets us know about what God is doing in this 80 years of seemingly of seeming silence is that God remembered his covenant promises. This isn't like me when every time I'm trying to drive somewhere, I'm trying to remember where I put the keys. This is more like the situation when you've been, something is just intimately like, like I don't need to be told I'm the father to these four girls. You know, 
I don't need to know that. Those, those are my children. I know this. I mean, I know there's medical realities where sometimes this befalls people, but uh, I don't need to be told that. If Rob comes up to me after church and goes, oh, Kevin, so you know those are your four children. I'll be, you haven't told me anything I don't know. God is saying here in this remembering, it's not that, oh, I had forgotten. No, no, no. He, remember, he promised Abraham in Genesis 15, there would be this period of exile and suffering that would come to pass. He spoke to Abraham about this time we're now in. And so God is saying, I, I haven't forgotten you guys. I haven't forgotten anything about you. I remember. I know what I'm doing. He's a God who remembers all his promises. He remembers his promises to Adam and Eve. He remembers his promises to Noah. He remembers his promises to Abraham. He remembers his promises to Noah. He remembers his promises to David. And if you have seized upon the promises of God in the word of God through faith, he remembers every promise he has ever given you. You were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not of your own doing, but the gift of God, so that no man can boast. He's not saying, oh, I forgot Caitlin this morning, or I forgot Jesse this morning, or I forgot Kurt this morning. God remembers his promises to his people, he always remembers. Which leads us into the next thing God makes clear. In verse 25, God sees. God sees. God sees this people of Israel. It's one thing to say you hear the cries of suffering, it's one thing to say you remember your promises. It's another thing to see. I can think of some of the greatest hardships ever faced by American society. Battle of Gettysburg. Abraham Lincoln as the president in November goes out. I think it was November 19th. Goes out to make the Gettysburg address. To see the battlefield. To make a statement there. To see it with his eyes. We have etched in our history the remarks of FDR, the acknowledgement of what happened in Pearl Harbor. For those of us who remember the morning of September 11th, how could we forget a couple days later when George W. Bush with the bullhorn says, I hear you. I hear you. And pretty soon the whole world will hear you. We, we want to be seen. I think, I think it's maybe even one of our great struggles in humanity is when we feel invisible to the world. Then depression can seek, seek in, seep in. And God says, I see you. But then there is another question. When God says he sees you. See, 
The social justice warrior pastor wants to just make this a story of essentially God delivering a pharaoh who is a, in one sense, plantation owner of all plantation owners of the world in antebellum south, in the antebellum south, uh, being cast down by God. And then he can just kind of stay on that uh, skin color plane of it all and slavery and the social justice idea of slavery. And slavery is wrong. Read books like Philemon to understand that God desired humanity to move on from slavery. But the reality of this passage and the reality of slavery is that when the New Testament talks about the truest slavery that we have, what slavery does it have in mind? Sin. Actually, in Romans chapter 8, it talks about how in the matter of sin, because of sin, the whole creation is groaning under the strain of it all. That basically, this has happened from the very beginning of the fall in one sense. And so... It's at this point, we need to shift how we're looking at this passage a little bit. If God has heard all things, if God remembers all things, and if God at this point has now seen all things, and the greatest slavery he's concerned about is the enslavement to sin, well now, there's something scary to consider. Because... Not all sin is external. Not all problems can be blamed on some other group of oppression. Because we all have the old man we are battling and we are wrestling with. I have failed in woefully sinful ways to be a good son to be a good husband, to be a good father, to be a good friend, to be a good pastor. People have grown due to sins I have committed and also I have sins that have been put upon me that have caused me to groan. Who will deliver? Who has heard? Who has seen? God has. God has seen. And so we can't make too much of the 80 years of silence and forget about maybe the 80 years of our mortal life and the sins we will struggle with and the sins that God has seen. We need a mediator. We need restitution. And immediately when we start thinking this way, we start thinking, how could God love me? How could God love me? And actually the Christian church and of a whole embraces a whole variety of heresies about this because it struggles with this question. It doesn't answer it well. How can God love me if I continue to struggle at times in sin? 
And then we have the last thing this passage tells us about God in the silent moments, in the silent groans of life, in the silent enslavements that ensnare us. God tells us He knew us. He tells Israel, I know you. And the knowing here is an intimate knowing. It is a marital-like knowing. There is an intimacy in this knowing. When God has heard everything I've ever said, when He's remembered everything I've ever said, when He's seen everything I've ever said, how can God still love me? Because you don't understand. I'm an intimate God. I've... I'm there with you. I've, I've been with you the whole time, all along the way. In all the trials, in all the struggles, I've been there with you. I am a God who is there. And we need that. We need that so we have a faith that can survive when feeling is not there. When what we observe out in the world does not appear to be encouraging. It needs to be a faith where you know God intimately hears, God intimately loves, God intimately cherishes you, and He will never forsake you. And so, for you and I, In the dark moments, in the moments that generations before us in this very church have seen and witnessed, dark moments brought about by external forces, dark moments brought about by our own indwelling struggles with sin, dark moments brought about by the pieces of stone that are still within our heart. We need in those moments of difficulty and suffering to know a God that we have a God who hears us, who remembers us, who has seen us, and still intimately wants to know us. Even though the fires of judgment should have long ago consumed us, in this world with devils filled, a mighty fortress is our God. The book of Hebrews declares our God is a consuming fire. And there are two ways to approach that fire. One is through the road of taking up your cross and following Him. It's a road of suffering, but the suffering will lead to a greater purification to the point, to that great moment I so look forward to when we will see Him and be made perfectly like Him. But there is another group. There is a group that will refuse to be purified in the suffering of life, that will forsake God, that will curse at God, that will wave their fist at God, that will go into the grave hating God. And for them, there's another fire. A sobering reality. And so come now. Come now to the mediator for our sin who allowed himself to 
to bear the wrath of God that was worthy for us to bear and took it upon Himself upon the cross and now freely offers you His grace. For God's people, for those He intimately loves like this, a cross-like love, we endure in pain, we endure in suffering, and we endure because of the work of Christ. Because He's the God who entered the fiery trial of this world for our sake and purified us and our sins by taking them upon Himself and dying in our place. This is the hope of all of those who are a Hebrew in spirit, a separated one, a distinct one, in which that name truly means. By those who have been uniquely set apart by God. The world looks at them as separate and distinct and odd. Even as we saw in the first chapter of Exodus, they were even rooting for the Pharaoh's project to succeed the people. And while the king of, kings of this world might never care for our groans and our cries, they might never know our names, they might never hear us, might never remember us, never think upon us. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, who's seen all, who knows all, who sustains all, He intimately abides with us. That is our Christian hope when not every prayer is answered in this life. That the one we pray to has seen us, has heard us, has remembered us, and intimately knows us in such a way we need never to fear and we need to share that deliverance with others. When we can't observe, when we can't feel His abiding presence, this is the faith we cling to. Amen? Amen. Let us pray.